Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the J. Berg Wilk Learning Series for 2017-2018. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here in Arizona for many reasons, to meet your wonderful community to be every part of this Valley Beit Midrash. Also, you should know this is the third largest Hindu community in America. Yeah, the largest is Edison, New Jersey, followed by San Jose, California. Okay, and thank you for deciding to come here instead of watching the Oscars. <laughs> so I spent a year on sabbatical teaching in the graduate school at Benares Hindu University in Varanasi, in Benares in India. And I got there because I wrote in my book, Judaism and World Religions, and I was the first one to cull all the traditional Jewish statements on Buddhism and Hinduism. No one had ever done that before. And I taught there a course on Western religions centering on Judaism, and I taught an intro to religion. And to understand how much of a gap there is, their instructor who normally teaches Judaism had never heard of the Talmud. No, don't laugh because that's important because you've never heard, very few of you, I suspect, have heard of the Agamic literature, which is their Talmud. The, they were surprised in India to learn that Jews no longer gave animal sacrifices because it says in Leviticus we give animal sacrifices. But then they said, oh, yes, we understand. Your 19th century reformers got rid of it. <laughs> The, the most important thing to learn is avoid all generalizations, stereotypes, and almost everything in the American popular literature on Hinduism, or in almost anything that even comes up in a Google search, is incorrect. The same way Jews are not still practicing Leviticus, no Hindu is practicing the Vedic texts, no Hindu is practicing anything you learn in your intro to Hinduism course in college, unless it's a very young instructor. But almost anyone who's doing the classic texts, stopping around the year 600, nothing you learned. None of those dancing shivas that make great book covers are actually worshipped in India. None of those great Hindu sculptures are actually worshipped, because they're great, they're temple designs on the outside. The same way if you took a picture of the lions that are accompany many synagogues and said Jews are worshiping the lions. It's the wrong impression. So too, the, we're in different worlds. A question that I repeatedly got asked is, what do I think about Hitler? They don't know anything about World War II or Europe. Their World War II went through Burma, Indochina, to Japan. They don't have any of our frame of reference. The same way, and I bring this out for the converse, 
assuming that unless you were a GI fighting on Burma Road, you have very little sense of their geography and how they're seeing the world. That the converse is important. Uh, Hinduism is actually a variety of different religions having, having less in common with each other than maybe Lutherans, Evangelicals, Catholics, and others. We lump them all together under one word, and they now self-identify, but it was a slow process. But until the 17th century, they were in some way separate religions. And India is a big place with 1.2 billion people, the most populous country on Earth. So therefore, they've got a lot of common roots and practices, but know that almost any obscure guru or sect has more members than there are Jews in the world. <laughs> Since the fact they've heard of us, they assume we have to be at least 200 million, or else they, we, they wouldn't have heard of us. That they still can't wrap their heads around. Why would they heard of us? Because there are many tribal people who have more numbers than there are Jews, and no one records what they're doing. In short, and this is on one foot before we go on, there's a religion of Shaivism that worships Shiva only as an iconic rock. Okay, in America, a lot of the Hindu temples use a nice boulder from one of the canyons. And that's a high god. The separate religion is the religion of Vishnu or Vaishnavism, which took a whole bunch of tribal religions and merged them all together, but kept all the different representations of all the gods. That's the religion that has incarnations and many divas, because they'll distinguish between Brahman, which is the word we use as God, diva, which we don't have a word in English for, but know that in Hebrew and Arabic in the Middle Ages, diva was translated as angel. So a lot of these things like Krishna and other things were translated by medieval Jews and Muslims as angels. For whatever reasons, Christians went out of their way to translate it as gods in order to, to say nasty things about Hinduism. But that's not actually... We, are in our own literature, knew better a thousand years ago. There are separate groups that worship Shakti, which is the feminine principle, and that's an offshoot of Shaivism. That makes up 90 8% of the country or 96% of the country. In addition, for the remaining 2%, you have the religion of the ashrams called Smarta, which assumes that there's one Brahmin and it doesn't matter what image you use. And there's also a bunch of modernizing, all sorts of modernizing groups out there. Now, even with, if you belong to one of these religions, know that India has 19 separate languages. So therefore, there's very little communication between them. And northern and southern India keep separate holidays. Even though they're loosely related, they're not identical. So even in the same religion, there's a difference. So let's start with a thought experiment to try to understand Hinduism in Jewish terms. And this is an attempt to overcome our dichotomy between true and false Judaism and Hinduism. When Jeroboam, in the Book of Kings, set up the golden calves, in the cities of Dan and Beit El. The Bible condemns putting up the golden calves. You're putting up images, but no, it was images to the biblical God, but it was still images. The Bible says you don't put up any images, 
and you only have one centralized temple in Jerusalem. If this was India, the answer is that would be great. Because look, India is a big country, and as Ramakrishnan, the second president of India, said, we are such a big country, and we need as many temples as we can get all over the place. And two, the average person needs representation. That's already the dividing line where the Bible condemns representation. Hindus like representation. That's the only way to connect to the God. So when we read Deuteronomy, and it says don't worship pillars, trees, minor deities, astral bodies, and only worship God himself, don't use representation, Hinduism says, no, we're going to use all that because that's the natural human spirit. Not that it's many gods, but it's a certain inverse thinking that Deuteronomy got it correct, but in an inverse that we prohibit a lot of what they do. In Hinduism, they say, look, the masses need this. And over the millennium or centuries or millennium, they're going to perfect themselves to believe in one God, no representation, and just have a true worship. Judaism, on the other hand, says we've got to get rid of it immediately, and we have very little tolerance for what the masses want. Or if this was Elijah at Mount Carmel, and it's a showdown between Elijah and the priests of Baal, who is the right God? If this was India, it might have, if it was certainly from the 17th century on, it probably would have ended with a handshake and a quote from Malachi 1.11, saying, my name is great among the nations, where any place that incense is offered in purity and pure offerings brought to me, my name will be great among the nations, meaning we all are worshiping really one God. Hindus have that sort of attitude that if you believe in one high God, that's fine. And you know what? If this was Hinduism, you know our biblical cousins like Moab and Ammon that sound very similar to our own biblical religion? Let's bring them in too. There's no reason to keep them out. So we're going to find a way to integrate them. And at every point in the Second Temple times and onward, the Judaism said, let's make, look for a narrow group of purity. Hinduism said, let's be expansive and include everybody, and the very few things ever got ex excluded. That's a way to move from a biblical point of view forward. But I'm going to tell one more story before we get to, back to talk about Hinduism. Story of Abraham. It's a story that goes back to Second Temple times, in which Abraham uh, was minding his father's idol shop. And the father went out, and Abraham smashed all the idols, put an axe in the biggest one, and said, the other idols did it. And the father said, what are you talking about? An idol can't smash another idol. They're just wood and stone. And Abraham said, look what you're saying. Why do you worship them? How would this have played out if the Bible was written in India? So Terach, Abraham's father, would have come home and said, Abraham, are you a moron? The statues are only used to bring God to mind. We need a representation, and they help us show true, devo true devotion. But Abraham said there's only one true and material God. Terach would have said, but we live in a sensory material world. That's why the Torah will later give you a tabernacle and give you physical commandments later on. 
because we live in a sensory world. So even the Torah is going to make you live in a sensory world of tactile mitzvot and a tactile tabernacle. But Abraham is going to say, but you think they're actually alive. Terach would say, give me a break. They're wood and clay. Only when they're brought into the temple and consecrated in a special ceremony do we treat them as alive as a sign of honor. But here in, this, here in the store, they're nothing but what we, what we made them out of. They're not robots. They have no moving parts. Abraham, have you ever seen an idol move? It's a straw, and, straw man argument doesn't work. Like, for example, Abraham, do the cherubs move in the tabernacle? And Abraham would say, yes, the cherubs move in the tabernacle. The Bible says they turn to and fro each other to show God's pleasure and displeasure. Terah could say, boy, you're anthropomorphic. Maybe that you should learn Maimonides' guide for the perplexed, or Shankar is Brahma Sutra, and you'll learn a much more spiritual religion than you have. But Abraham's going to say, no, what about those thousands of plaster and clay little idols that Hindus make for home shrines and for stores? You're worshiping them. Terah would have said, no, they only serve as a reminder. They help us focus. We have to change them regularly. We have to leave them out in the rain regularly to show that we don't treat them intrinsically as idols. They have no holiness intrinsically. You treat a Sefer Torah and Tefillin more holy than we treat these idols. But Abraham said, but you feed these things. How can, the, how can, the, how can these statues eat? Terach was said, look, we're offering to them. We didn't say they eat. In the temple, the tabernacle in the temple, you also give offerings, and the Bible says they're offerings for God. But you're not seeing that anyone's going around thinking God is chopping on it. You have to assume, if you go to a foreign country, try to assume that people are on the same level of sophistication as you are. Your offering is not literal eating, and neither is this one. And Abraham can say, but I discovered heaven and earth, and everyone else is primitive and literal. I get to correct them. I get to show them the elders the right way. Terah could say, I can't wait until you're out of adolescence. But if God ever tells you to offer your son on a mountain, please think about what offering means and how it may not be actual sacrifice. Going back to Hinduism. So my actual discovery of Hinduism started before I left. We had a meeting of the Fulbright Fellows in a restaurant in Manhattan, chosen by all the people, Fulbright, you know, getting academics from all over, and everyone coming from the Midwest wanted to really taste the New York place. So we, we met in this New York brick oven pizzeria, because for a lot of America, that's what you do in New York. And before those of us who were Hindu and Jewish got there, um, they already had ordered food. And immediately, as when we sat down, we got into this immediate discussion between the Jews and the Hindus about whether fish is considered meat or not. Because, for example, for parts of India, it's considered meat, and in other parts, it's not. But beyond that, we got into discussions on topics like mushrooms. Because many Brahmins don't eat mushrooms because it's not really a vegetable, it's a fungus. And you may not know, in Talmudic law, mushrooms have, don't, have, don't have the same blessings as a regular vegetable for the same reason. There was an immediate bonding over taxonomy. In a technical sense, if anyone's ever read the anthropologist Mary Douglas, we immediately bonded over those sort of taxonomies, which all these Midwestern Christians did not share with the Jews and the Hindus. 
The actual practices of the two religions are different, but the way of thinking is very, very similar. So I was officially at Benares Hindu University, which is a religious college. It's actually the largest in Southeast Asia. And the, I was entered into the Brahmin culture. I lived in a faculty dorm. Just like Jews, the pious students would kiss their books when they were done with them. They would also make a point where Jews will kiss the mezuzah, pious Hindus will kiss the bottom lintel of the door, meaning you've got to mark space in the same sort of ways. And the school was, in many ways, things I knew about from my own Jewish background. For example, I mean, coming from a orthodox background in which men and women will not touch in dramatics and dance. Benares Hindu University, I watched them put on dramatic performances in which the men and women did not touch. And you can see the awkwardness in the performance of the plays that I knew so well from orthodox productions. Now, in terms of my looking at Hinduism, I'm not looking at the colorful person that you take pictures of in the street. I mean, the sadhu who has their face painted who wants you to throw a few coins. I was part of Brahmin culture. I ate with them. I lived with them. And most of them had been living there and teaching there for a thousand years. I mean, so they're not recreating. Unlike Jews who are forever moving, Everybody in this university, even though they're now full professors, in some way is related to some great ancestor who taught here in the 9th, 10th, 11th century. And that when they became a university in 1898, they just moved all the things scattered all over the city into one place. But they had a real sense that this was their tradition. So that was the Hinduism I saw. Now, this is not the first time Jews discovered Hinduism. As I mentioned before, medieval Jews knew about Hinduism. Parts of the Yoga Sutras, the parts of the Bhagavad Gita, and others were translated into Hebrew. They were part of a general medieval Jewish liberal arts education. Uh, and then they came from, from Sanskrit into Arabic or Persian, and then from there into Hebrew. Sadyagon, the medieval Jewish thinker, often refers to Buddhist and Hindu ideas. Uh, and there are a number of other medievals who do, skipping ahead to the age of exploration in the 16th century. When the explorers discovered, claimed to discover India in the 16th and 17th century, they wrote back about the things they saw there. And the Christian missionaries wrote these books saying that the Hindus were absurdities, follies, superstitions, and diabolical ceremonies. Well, Rabbi Menashe in Israel, who's chief rabbi of Amsterdam, and therefore some of his own congregants were members of the East India Company, said no. He cited, he cited the verse from Malachi, anybody who offers to God with a pure heart is a real offering. And he also is the one who created the myth that Abraham in the book of Genesis is said to give his concubines gifts. He created the myth that the gift given to his concubines were the Eastern religions as a way of bringing them into a biblical understanding. I mean, now that gets recited by many people in the 20th century. In the 20th century, when the, the sacred books of the East were, came out, they were re reviewed by various religious journals, surprisingly, uh, already in 1900. But what got me interested in this and how I wound up beyond the fact 
the Fulbright in the book, was an event based on globalization back in 2004. There's a controversy over the hair that's used by ultra-Orthodox women for their wigs that they discovered in an age of globalization that it comes from Hindu temples. They never, know, they never figured that out before. Now, it comes from a temple in Tirupati, India. And most of the discussions were only about whether it's like Greco-Roman idolatry or not like Greco-Roman idolatry. There was no real ethnographic interest on their part. They really couldn't make sense of it. So I, as a minor border crosser, received a phone call from, one, from a rabbi trying to head off the controversy, saying, you know, I want to explain to them what's going on. And all he could ask was, Hinduism, Buddhism, what does it care? Is it, you know, is it like the worship of Mercury? Is it like the worship of Apollo or not? And there was like no way to bridge because the, the ethnography went as far as what the Talmud talked about. And then later I went to visit that. I actually went to that temple. The three years later, in 2007, was the first Jewish Hindu encounter in which a delegation from the chief rabbi of Israel, chief rabbinate of Israel met a delegation of swamis in Rishikesh, Delhi and Rishikesh, and they signed a declaration of mutual understanding. In 2008, it went reciprocated, and it met in Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem in 2008, the rabbis and the swamis signed on that both religions share a creator and guide of the cosmos. The Jews acknowledge that Hindus worship one supreme being, don't think they're representations of, as idols. And this is what the rabbis said. The participants reaffirmed their commitment to the deepening of this bilateral relationship predicated on the recognition of one supreme being, creator, guide of the cosmos, shared values, and similar historic experiences. It is recognized that one supreme being, both in its formless and manifest aspects, has been worshipped by Hindus over the millennia. This does not mean that Hindu worship gods or idols. The Hindus relate to only one supreme being when he or she prays to a particular manifestation. So the chief rabbinate of Israel already signed off on that. And then I was at the third one in 2009. Um, so that's already a starting point. There is already a growing awareness of people going back, and there's a lot of things that are in drafts that are coming out, books and articles of rabbis who are now trying to piece together an understanding between the two faiths. But let's go back to one of my first weeks in India, okay? The holiday of Diwali, the Feast of Lights. Comes around Hanukkah time. Now in Benares on the, on the Ganges, people go out on boats to watch the lights on the shore. So I was in a chartered boat by a bunch of Sanskrit scholars and they brought a number of us European and Americans to and they explained everything to us. They were scholars, and they said, this is Hindi, this is Sanskrit, this is original, this is new, this is changed. So we got everything explained to us. But in the midst of this, there's this nice chilly night under the starlight, watching the lights on the shore. I turned to one of the scholars, and I said, what happens if they make a mistake doing the ritual with the lights? or the lights go out, or they don't light the correct number of lamps. The Christian graduate student next to me said, don't make fun, you're ridiculous. 
But the Hindu scholar said, no, no, no. They've all been trained not to make a mistake. But if they do, they would have to give an offering if they make a mistake. And it also makes a difference whether the mistake was intentional or unintentional. Hinduism cares about types of mistakes. Now, that may sound like nothing, but Jews and Hindus have that in common. For example, if one drops the chalice in a Catholic mass, you don't have to worry about making a mistake. It's not a sin. You don't go back. You don't repeat it. There are no rules. There are no mistakes in Catholic ritual. But Hinduism has mistakes. So there's an old joke of a Jewish child visiting Catholic neighbors, and upon seeing the Christmas tree, it got thrown out of the house. The Catholic father complained to the Jewish boy's father, saying he saw a Christmas tree and started making fun. What did he say, said the Jewish father? The Catholic father said he started asking ridiculous questions, like what kind of pine tree can be used? What's its height? <laughs> what happens if the electricity goes out? There's too many decorations render it unfit. But this joke would be, be lost on the Hindus because they've got to light exactly 51 or 101 flames. It's got to be a specific kind of wick. It's got to be pure fuel. If it's not pure, it doesn't count. The gestures and motions have to be exact. And any mistake renders it unfit. And so too, like Jewish law, if, a certain if there's impurities around, the ritual has to be done again. And both the Talmud and the Hindu Shastras talk about what, when you pray, what are the problems of cow dung and cat feces in a house of worship, and whether the bathroom's closed or not. So therefore, Judaism and Hinduism can have great conversations about cat feces and prayer that you wouldn't be able to have with a Christian. You laugh, but that's an important part of the commonality. In terms of purity laws, they're both very similar. In terms of conceptualization of sins and actions, intentional not, they're very similar. And in the end, Hindu rituals should all be done with intention. There isn't this power, there isn't a power invested in it. In fact, in Hinduism, you're supposed, usually supposed to say, I am now doing this to fulfill my requirement or I am doing this to connect up above. Which brings me to the, to the next lead-in, Tantra. Now, you may think you know what Tantra is, and it's something to do with sex, but it's actually, that's not what it is. Tantra literally means creating a weave of thought and action. And so the most common Tantra that is done in Hinduism is any sort of intention you are supposed to do when you do a ritual. So every priest is taught the Tantra, and all the laws about how you do temple worship is in a huge corpus of literature greater than the Talmud called the Agamic literature, of which only a fraction has been translated into English, and it's not in any Hindu anthology used in a college course. So it's just like I started out, the Hindu teacher didn't know the Talmud, Jews are not really knowing the basic of temple worship. What does it mean and what are they thinking about? Now, of the Tantra, it becomes the most common Tantra is to say, at least in a Shaivite country, or Shaivite land, is to say, I now do this performance to unify Shiva and Shakti. I want to unify Shiva and Shakti when I do this thing. And that's very similar to the traditional prayer books. 
that would say, I want to unify the Holy One, blessed be He, and the Shekhinah when I do this mitzvah and this commandment. That is technically what Tantra is. Uh, it's something that now brings an effect on the higher realm. Much of what we call Kabbalah, when you say this, this mitzvah, this commandment affects Svirot in the higher realms, would be a natural form of what they would call Tantra. It's something you think about as the effect that it's going to have. There's a cosmos-maintaining effect for both Judaism and for Hinduism. Moving forward into the realm of the philosophic realm, a traditional Hindu learns the traditional six schools of philosophy. And so therefore, everybody who's out there who's in any way empowered to speak about Hinduism does these darshanas, these um, philosophic schools. So one of them, the most basic one, are the two schools of Nyaya and Mimamsa. Nyaya is the scholastic approach, and Mimamsa is the legal approach. In some way, it's akin to the world of Maimonides. Nyaya is what the way what we would call scholasticism. That's they would have their versions of the cosmological argument, the teleological argument, all these classic forms proving that there's one God and there can't be many gods. And that's the basic curriculum for all of them. And they will prove God, revelation, reward, and punishment. And they will then do all their modern papers on Aristotle, Habermas, Kant, Nyaya and Kant, Nyaya and Habermas, how do they take their philosophy and apply it to Western thought? Mimamsa is their rules for how to generate law. So for example, if I asked you what are the Vedas about, for those who've ever read a paperback edition of the Vedas, what is it about? You're going to say it's about these, all these ancient gods and kings and it's all sorts of many, many ancient Bronze Age things that, that don't matter anymore, because that's the way you usually teach it in a, in a, from a college textbook. An actual Hindu would say, Mamamsa only mean, I mean, the Vedas only mean what Mamamsa tells you to mean, meaning it's only a source of law. What is the law of what you have to do? and how you have to have procedures. For a contemporary Hindu, there is no gods of the Bronze Age. There's no, there's no gods of fire, wind, and sun. They were a memory already by the first century CE. As much as any vestige of any sort of ancient paganism you're going to find as any sea monster that you're going to find in the back of Genesis, assuming that contemporary Jews still believe in a sea monster, that God is still fighting. It's long since been gone, and they read it only as a procedural rules, the way Jews lead Leviticus and Deuteronomy. What can be procedurally used for laws of precedence, for later laws? And I don't want to get overly technical, but for example, where Jews would generally, if you have a specific law followed by a general law, you follow the general law. In Hinduism, you follow the uh, if you have a specific followed by the general, you follow the specific. Same line of thinking, even if it's an opposite answer. And there's even now a whole bunch of recent papers 
comparing halachic Judaism and Jewish legal practices to Hindu practices, and it's a growing field. And specifically, let's talk about sacrifice. Now, well, most of India has banned animal sacrifice. It still goes on in Nepal. And they still, they're doing a modernized version. They're not doing the ancient versions. But I was wandering around the UNESCO sites in Nepal, and someplace in my wandering, I smell something terrible. And I see this little alley, and I go in, and I come a bunch, a bunch of men dressed about five men dressed in their formal best, and somebody in front of them with a blowtorch cooking a sheep for them, goat, a goat for them, and sit down, they're being very hospitable, and then at some point it dawns on me, they're offering a sacrifice, and if I stay any longer, I'm going to have to partake. So I make an excuse that my driver is waiting for me, and I walk off. But there is the idea of sacrifice. Now, for most Hindus and Jews, you don't give sacrifice anymore, but Jews still refer, use sacrificial metaphors for prayers, for the Sabbath table, for the synagogue. Hindus will also use it, metaphor, but unlike Jews who would just say something like the Sabbath table is our sacrifice, Hindus will actually offer up flowers and fruit, saying we don't do the ancient sacrifices anymore, but we still want the sense of doing it, so we now do a non-ritually structured offering of marigolds and clarified butter and fruit as a way to keep it going. In southern communities, they crack a coconut when you go to temple for that physical sense of breaking something and then the milk gushing out. And depending on the temple, some places you do it yourself and others you need that the priests do it. So in some way, it's a memory of what was. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. But even in this, we can compare notes, and this is technical, and I'm not going to go into it. Jewish ritual slaughtering of meat, you have to kill the meat by a backward and forward motion, and if you hit straight down, it's not kosher. In Hinduism, it's only ritually pure if you go straight down, and if you go back and forth, it's no good. Completely opposite, but we could have a great conversation defining what both of those are because we're thinking in similar terms. Now moving to temples. If you want to understand, I open with this and I'm going to come back to it. I could take a collection of various things about any, I know New York, I don't know downtown uh, Phoenix, but New York is filled with old buildings that have all sorts of griffins and gargoyles and unicorns, as well as patience and fortitude, the big lions in front of the New York Public Library. And if I put those all in a museum exhibit, you might think that New Yorkers are worshiping those. So too, they do that often with both Buddhist and Hindu art. Know that no Buddhist is worshiping those big lions that they like putting in museums. Those are good luck, fortune to drive away bad spirits in front of temples. So to a lot of the great, great things you put there, 
are uh, not really worshipped. But on the other hand, imagine if some curator with a little bit of perversity made an image of the biblical golden calves or, or, or artistic renditions of them through the ages, the mosaic synagogue reliefs from late antiquity showing all these images, um, the relics from the Jewish temples that existed in Egypt, together with the bird's head Haggadah and Polish synagogue lions, and told you these are the images the Jews worshipped. It would be just, that would be unfair, and don't do that to Hindus either. On the other hand, Judah Halevi, the great Jewish philosopher, says when you pray, you should visualize God's presence in front of you, the Shekhinah. If Jews were into the, into the material and plastic arts in the Middle Ages, we would have had a record of what that looked like closer to the Hindus. I did go to the temple in where the hair comes from. No, it is the most visited place on earth, about 60,000 people a day. It's in, it is a temple in a, called Tirumala, near the city of Tirupati. In an age of airline travel, you can now hop in for a day, do your ritual and leave. And this is, for their point of view, this is as close to God as they get. Imagine if you could now see God in the temple. They think they're going to go see God at this temple. It's a southern temple, and it took on, taking on ever greater role. And the temple is about the size of a large college campus that includes dormitories, bungalows, hotels, markets, flea markets, a petting zoo for the kids, playgrounds, dentistry clinics, museum. And in the center is a small, a small temple. And in the process, you shave your head as a sign of purity to go in. Not that they're, we're using, not that they're offering up the hair, but it's a very common southern Indian practice to shave your head regularly. Northern Indians only do it as times of great uh, devotion or as a sign of mourning. They shave for mourning, like in the Le Leviticus, the priests had to shave their head. Or they shave their head, they'll go to the temple because um, like Orthodox Judaism, Hindus have a ritual for boys reaching, a, reaching three years old, but they don't have one for girls. So what they do, in which they shave the boy's head at three years old, they grow the hair long and then they shave it long. It's an orthodox custom called upshearing. But the point is, in Hinduism, there's no ritual for girls, so modern Hindus will then fly their little girls to the temple where everyone's going to shave their head, so therefore it's equal between boys and girls. It's a pattern that I can regularly understand the sort of thought process by which, you, you, by which you're going to do it. You're going to find the legal way of getting involved. And so therefore, they will go to this temple, and they will then get their image, their seeing God, and they will go home, but they're going to make a, they're going to make a time. They, they buy stuffed animals for their kids. They go to the petting zoo. But know that this temple, don't, don't think of less of them than of you, know that the head priest in this temple has a doctorate in molecular biology 
and could just as well be here in Phoenix or Santa Fe in one of the hospitals or universities. Know that all his kids who are going to be taking over for him have MBAs. Meaning don't think that they, even though they're maybe barefoot and wearing a loincloth doing this ritual, don't assume anything of it because you never know in some sort of turn they could be your superior at a local hospital here uh, in a few months later. Moving now to modernization. Modernizing has done a lot to India. So first of all, the 19th century under British colonialism, a lot of Indian groups did, did away with whatever vestigial ancient practices they thought did not fit into the modern age. A whole bunch of them. They tended to modernize more. And they placed greater emphasis on the earlier works than the later customs. They also tended to believe more in a universalism of all religions, like Vivekananda, who showed up at the World Parliament of Religions in 1890, 1898 and impressed everyone and brought the words mantra and meditation into American English. But I want to do now the modernizations of the last 20 years. First of all, the biggest modernization is tourism. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, you know how much is done for the sake of tourists in that town? So too in Hinduism. So we talked about Diwali, they're lighting lights and they're doing all these ceremonies every night on the shore that they take all the tourists to. It's entirely done for the tourists. It is not a sacred ritual because then it would be either be done in a temple. Like Judaism, there either is a temple ritual or a home ritual. The fact that they're doing it on the shore is a way to now make a generic Hinduism in which also it's all lights. So you have no problem posing, meaning you could have Prince Charles, uh, who was there when I was there, pose in front of the, what they call the arti, the waving of the lights, because you're not posing with anything particularly Hindu other than lights, which is a rather universal symbol. There's a certain universalism. So all the Brahmins that I said, don't waste your time on those rituals. They're only being done for the sake of tourists. But I want to come back to America and come back to Phoenix. First of all, there are many different types of Hinduism even being practiced right here in Phoenix. So the temple that we're going to be connected to tomorrow, the Sri Krishna temple, is a group of Brahmins from Udupi, India, on the southern, southern uh, western shore. They are all almost all physicians and scientists. They're coming in as an elite. They were an elite in the home country, the Bain branches in Edison, New Jersey. But they're a unified group that moved here and are keeping their traditions only. Phoenix also has another Krishna temple of northern worshipers of Krishna, which is more folksy and not, as and not a different group being there. America has also generated a huge amount of followers of the Swami Naharayan form of Buddha, uh, Hinduism, also called Baps, which is a temple here in Phoenix. Swami Naharayan Hinduism 
is a modernizing that started in the Gujarati region where Modai is from that did away with bringing in food and incense and clarified butter. It is now, when you go to the temple, they do hymn singing. All the gods are just in small representations behind Lucite, so it doesn't really seem like much more than decoration. If you want to give a libation, all you can do is water. You can't do milk or honey or anything else anymore. But they don't allow you to give any home offerings. You've got to visualize it in your mind because they want to modernize. But at the same time, they're incredibly strict on dietary laws that they won't eat anything that wasn't produced by another member of their group. And they don't allow men and women to be socialized together. They're also in the forefront of teaching Hinduism using movies, boat rides, like Disney World, Disneyland type of boat rides, exhibits, all sorts of things. The world's largest Hindu temple, both in India is a Swami Naharayan, and the largest in America is a Swami Naharayan, in which it becomes this whole exhibit center in which you're now educating through museum exhibits and films and, like, and short films. Um, but it's a professionalization. And it, unlike the modernists 100 years ago that wanted to emphasize meditation and philosophy, this group wants to emphasize ritual. And therefore, you're a professional doctor or engineer, and you keep the ritual. Another group here in Phoenix is the Sai Baba group. Now, I don't know. I haven't visited the Sai Baba group here in Phoenix, and I don't want to say anything about it, except that no, in India, Sai Baba was the religion of the small-time shopkeeper, your taxi cab driver, the fruit vendor. It was a Hinduism that didn't emphasize temple or rituals. It basically said, be good to your wife and children, care about each other, were above all sectarian things. Very low church, as you would say in America, very much just have a general ethos of be ethical, be a good family people, children listen to the parents, parents be good to the children. And, you, and the guru of that was a 19th century figure, Sai Baba. And it's very devotional, very much singing hymns, not the high temple Brahmin culture. And so you've got that a separate group here. Know that in India, this, people do not cross over between, between the Brahmin group and this Sai Baba group. You also have here a brand new group uh, of the last few decades called ISKCON. Many of you know it as the Hare Krishna group, which came to America to do outreach, mission work. They're one of the only Hindu Hindus don't do conversion or mission. They believe everybody is born into their own dharma, their own faith. So in India, I was Dharma Yahud, or they didn't know what my dharma was. They thought I was, could be Dharma Farsi. But they left me alone as my own dharma. Hare Krishnas are the only ones that do mission work. And they are outreach. They are like Chabad. They're very much out there. They're very much looking to get you in. They are very different theologically than everything we've been talking about. They actually believe that Krishna is the incarnation of God. And you have to believe in Krishna and only Krishna to be saved. They are the most Christian of any 
group and probably the most theologically problematic for Jews, unlike the others. You also have here in Phoenix a number of groups that call themselves with various names like yoga, health, fitness, and Ayurvedic medicine. And depending who you ask, they may not even be Hindu. They are taking certain aspects of Hindu culture, like healing and fitness, and you know, setting themselves up as an Indian healing spirituality, but they've taken out a lot of the indigenous Hindu parts. And that's an important part of seeing the religion. And I'm going to conclude with the question that comes back to. So in the end, is it polytheism? Which I always is the question that we're going to give people in the end. What do I take from this? Know that there's no Jewish word like that. The only Jewish word is foreign worship, avodah zarah. Jews should not be worshiping a statue of a deity or giving it food offerings because Jews don't do that from biblical times on. But there is no category of polytheism. That word was made up by Christians in the, 19th, sorry, in the 17th century. And this is important before we finish. Polytheism assumed, the most famous person who used it was um, the philosopher David Hume. He said there are three stages of religion. There's the religion of polytheism, when you don't know the, nature, the difference between nature, the forces of nature, and so you're worshiping many forces out there. And that's what those Hindus do. No Hindu actually ever did that. The second stage up after polytheism is the religion of, um, is the religion now of ritual and superstition, which he put Jews and Catholics you realize whenever you use the word polytheist, there's an implicit attack on Jews also because we still think we're, if the Hindus worship many gods to Hume, Jews still think you need commandments, physical items, the horrific physicality of Judaism of actually having ritual objects, and so too the Papists. And the only true position is the true monotheist position of the Protestants who know you believe in God without any sort of ritual or any, any object to it. So know whenever you use that word, the original context of it is not the Jewish... Con not, it's an implicit critique of Judaism also. It assumes Protestantism is the highest form. And you can collect from the 16th to the 19th century all these statements portraying Jews as primitive, brutes, superstitious, because Gentiles would come into our synagogues and see us do ritual acts like carry a Torah around or take the four species or make Passover matzah, and we are ritual brutes. No, that ended in the beginning of the 19th and early 20th century, having more to do with the rise of evangelical Christians who had their own biblical worldview in which we don't fit in as the brutes. So therefore, books stopped referring to Judaism as brutes. Uh, and you would never see that anymore. And therefore, a lot of the books you will find about Hinduism or a Google search, to come full circle to where I started, are still those old-time old time views. And to conclude, one last statement 
There's an observant poet in Israel by the name of Rivka Miriam. If you've ever read her work, she's been translated, important religious poet. And she feels her Jewish knowledge allowed her to experience India in terms taken from classical Jewish texts. She suggests that divinity is the secret draw of India on Jews. She writes in her account of going to India, meaning divinity in all its expressions in India brought about a transformation in me as a Jew. We Jews employ the common expression, there is no place devoid of him, meaning no place devoid of God. In India, I discovered a world where indeed so it is. I discovered a world where there is no one who does not believe. I discovered a world where one sees divinity in every tree and every stone, but also in every deed and every matter. The entire world is full of his glory. Yes. What's the effect of religion on the politics of India? In India? Mm-hmm. I mean, Brahmins this. Have more no, Brahmins are not allowed to be in politics because the way they think, only Brahmins are allowed to be teachers. So 90% of the professors were Brahmins. And because of government rules, they've got to now have invite other groups in. But politics is a whole separate group called the warrior group that's in politics. The majority of politicians belong to that group, even though any, any group could theoretically be there. Yes? A lot of, uh, at least my understanding of our view of Hinduism uh, came through the channel of the English colonization, that experience. Mm-hmm. And uh, the two main stories that I've heard and understood is the stories of the caste system, um, which I'm hoping you can elaborate a little bit more on the caste system, both as it transitioned in the British period right. and also how it plays a role today. And then also uh, one of the biggest big stories, which might be about uh, Western superiority, but one of the uh, big stories that I've heard is the story of the British governor who banned uh, women being thrown onto funeral pyres right. by their husbands. Right. And I don't know if that's apocryphal or true. Okay, okay, so let's go through that. First of all, caste is a Southeast Asia issue, and no Indians are rather livid that you keep put, connecting them to it as much as the first time you have a, Christ, a lecture on Christianity, the first thing you say, oh, the religion of slavery and concentration camps. Yes. Christians did do slavery. Christians created both the gulag and concentration camp. But Hindus or Indians feel very insulted, saying that you're connecting parts of their social structure and history with their religion itself. In terms of actual caste, there's actually not, like your textbooks say, four, because that's what there was in antiquity. If you go to a Hindu dating site, like Hindu date, there's a whole bunch of these things. There's going to be over 30 separate castes because people generally, if you're an old traditionalist, you still tended to both marry and go into a profession of one of your cousins or uncles, and that's the way it worked to the, to, in most traditional parts in India. Places like Bangalore, Hyderabad, the places that you visit for business, that's the way they break out of it. 
But in traditional places, there's still a sense that you're going to go into an uncle's business. And there's a certain sense that you're of these 30 separate groups, traditionally Bengalis married Bengalis, um, Gujaratis married Gujaratis, uh, people from um, Tamil married Tamil, and, and those are all separate groups. So rather than four, it's 30-something. And truthfully, if you're sitting here in Phoenix, you could Hindus marry whoever they want, so too in Bangalore or Hyderabad. But there became that a mixture in Western minds between that old social status and the way it actually works. The one thing that does stick is that in general, the priests only came from the Brahmin class, but that is changing also. There are all sorts of liberal groups in Hinduism. There's progressive Hindus and liberal Hindus, reform Hindus, that'll now break through a lot of those traditional rules. Okay? In terms of the widow burning, that's, just, that's also a practice that was banned. But once again, Hindus would say that's, a, that's like the fights between uh, the British colonialists and a lot, of bad Hindu, a lot of bad Indian practice, the same way they got rid of indentured servitude and all sorts of things, but stopped putting that directly onto Hinduism. But unfortunately, there's a debate going on to this day that California high school textbooks still want to talk about caste, widow burning, and other such ancient and horse sacrifice rather than anything that a Hindu's done in a thousand years, the same way as if they did Judaism, they would now do uh, marrying your minor daughters from you know, picking out whatever you want to pick out from, from Scripture and saying that's what Jews do. So yes, it's true, but you, it's a much more complex than saying that's what a Hindu would understand of their own religion. Yes? What about the Jains? Is that a sect, or is that the priestly body of many of them? Jains is its own religion, many times larger than Judaism, completely its separate religion, separate theology, completely nothing... It's, a, it's coming from a dharmic stock, but it's, it's got as much to do with it, it, it's got as much to do with Hinduism as Islam has to do with Christianity. They're both coming from an Abrahamic root, but they're very different religions. Here, they're both dharmic religions, but they're very different. So it's not part of the Hindu religion. So it's part of Hindu. If we if Hindu just means Indian, then they can include. Sikhs, Hindus, Buddhists, Jains, and about a half a dozen other smaller things under that broader sense, the same way we can use monotheist or Abrahamic for, can, and lump together Jews, Christians, um, uh, Muslims, and others. Mm -hmm. Yes? You mentioned that sacrifice, animal sacrifice was illegal. We were there three years ago, went to a Catholic temple, yeah. and they were doing sacrifice. Holly temples in the it's okay. So the same way there are things that are legal in Arizona that are not legal in New Jersey. <laughs> um, there are each state makes their own laws. So there are certain national laws and there are certain laws that are regional. The only people who will still do it are the temple. They'll give uh, goats on special occasions to Kali, 
But know, but know that that is already a worshiper of Kali puts you in a certain place within society that you will not... Because it's a separate... If, if I once I told you it's a different religion, know that some rather ethereal person in an ashram would just absolutely be abhorred and think they've got to train that person out of it. Yes? Why did you get into this? And why, uh, why is Hindu religions important? I got into this because um, I was doing Judaism and other religions, and then it branched out once I was doing Christianity and Islam, Jewish Christian dialogue, Jewish Muslim dialogue, I wound up Jewish Hindu dialogue. There became a, a quick trajectory of events from the moment that they discovered the wig hair came from the temple in Hindi, followed by the Jewish Hindu uh, encounter. I, there was one in Delhi, one in Jerusalem, and then one in New York. I was at the New York one. And then when it came time to do a sabbatical, I wanted to go someplace where it would be meaningful. And the odds of getting a Fulbright to England, or, or it is like you know, one in a million. But if you want to go someplace interesting, it's easier. And you have to be able to speak the language of the, of the university. And in India, it's English. But beyond that, there's a certain point that I'm interested in the comparative theology of now seeing myself through the other of now learning not just the tolerance, but the actual appreciation. There's a new word, allophilia, the appreciation of the other, not as an exotic, but as a way to even understand myself and the trajectory of my own religion. And it seemed like a very exciting thing to do. And why is Jewish Hindu relations so important to Okay, so Hindu relations, the, the, the one of them is the fact that we're, we're living in the same niche. The most basic one is that certainly in New Jersey, I go into a medical center, and it tends to be half Jewish, half Hindu. <laughs> I don't know if it's here, but in New Jersey, it's certainly. There's a similar niche, which leads now to a marriage together, socializing together, becoming one, because you are operating. You, know, you're, you're, you are together in that sense. There's now a coming together of India and Israel for commonalities that's growing by the month. There's a commonality of Hindus do not like Christians and Muslims because Christians and Muslims always missionized or attacked Hindus, and therefore Jews are the safe, triangulated, safe other. And we can appreciate it from the other direction once we get over and get to know them that they're not our, our very messy histories with Christians and Muslims. We lived for 3,000 years in India without anti-Semitism, and now any problems. We were just another group there doing our own dharma, you know, from the time of Solomon's temple with all those words there uh, showing there was trade routes all the way up to the 21st century. We've been living there, and so therefore it's something to really appreciate there. Yes. Which, which of your writings or the writings you recommend best survey the various groups you talked about? The Hinduism? Yeah. Next year, I hope at this time, I will have a book out by the name of Rabbi on the Ganges, mm -hmm. A Jewish Hindu Encounter. I will let Rabbi Lincoln Lovitz know when it comes out. <laughs> so you can, I mean, it's a shame I'm not here. I'm not selling books already. Yeah. If it's a year from now, I would have a pile of books <laughs> to sell. 
Yes. Um, to, um, but all this is going to be part of a book. Yeah. This is scratching the surface of a book. Holly, is last week. You missed it. It was Friday. Oh. It was last Friday. You should have gone. <laughs> so know that, okay, so once again, not to confuse civil, not only do you not confuse social order, like assume Christianity automatically means concentration camp or American slavery. Know that, don't confuse Indian civil religion with Hinduism. Real, the holiday is a holiday for Vaishnavites that occurred last Friday, in which you go to temple and there's a set prayers to be said. However, there is a folk religion in which all people go out and throw paint at each other, even if you're Jewish, Muslim, Farsi, or Shaivite, and that's not a formal part of Hinduism. It's the same way we've got Fourth of July rituals and Thanksgiving rituals that are part of our civil religion, throwing paint at each other is part of their, and having those festivals in the street is part of Indian civil religion. And I've checked with Indian Jews who grew up there. Jews partook of it because they knew it had nothing to do with the temple, the gods, or offerings. It was a civil religion. Is it, to them, it was no, no more than eating, you know, the way we do Thanksgiving. Um, but no, there's a really religious version going on in the temples. And that's not what you're being invited to. So the same way you people tend to get invited to these lamp lightings, the arti at the edge of a river, because in some way they are symbolic, they are universal, they can both create an interfaith event, but you're not really going into any, violating either person's religion. These paint festivals become things you can do on the college campus and not ask, I mean, even an Indian college campus, and not ask what religion anybody belongs to. Yes? What percentage of Indians are Hindus? What percentage of... I think it's about two-thirds. But it's actually, because of the nature of the country, each region is very different. So if you are in Uttarkhand or Uttar Pradesh or those regions, then it's almost all entirely Hindu. If you are in the Punjab, then it's 50% Muslim. If you are in the Tamil or in some of the more Chinese regions, which had a large number of tribal, who all converted to Christianity, so you could have 20, 30% Christian in those regions. So you're usually not answering it by the country, you're usually answering it by the, by the religion of that state. Know that Modi and the BJP party wants to make Hinduism the national religion the way Judaism is the national religion in Israel. Yes? I think I misunderstood just, uh, something you shared early on. Because um, what I understood you to share was that, uh, that the common person is, um, you know, in your whole Abraham Kedosh, yeah. um, 
only view statues as representation. Yeah. Whereas I thought in this form of pantheism that actually um, God is within everything and this object is a channel towards something higher but also is an end in itself. That God is within... So the question is what does end in itself mean? When, and that becomes a really technical, meaning every answer, even though you're going to have people say, oh, here's the philosophic religion, but the common people really believe this. No, every anthropologist who's gone has found that the common people know all is one. Everyone knows his oneness to the reality. They also know that the true Brahmin, the true unknown, is not here. So it becomes the same way when I... Lubavitch kid tells you God is here, God is there, God is everywhere. What does he mean? He doesn't mean that he's now going to do his Yom Kippur service to this cup of water. There's various like, um, relations that even a common person, even though if they could, could worship everything, still understands that that's not the true God behind everything. So the world is devoid of God. No. They're going to say it's filled with God, but they're going, to see a they're going to see an emanation scheme, a technical emanation scheme, which they have a system of five levels of avatara. Okay. Like a Svirot kind of thing. Like a kind of thing, but theirs is more complex. But the same way you could have Svirot, below that they could then have imminence in the world. So imagine if you have a Kabbalistic... Svirot followed by a Hasidic imminence in the world, and they have these complex schemes. The common person knows, does not know that. However, there is clearly some, by recognition, you understand it uh, by practice, meaning you have to take off your shoes in a place that's holy. You know there are places you're allowed to wear shoes. So even the littlest preschooler understands his levels of holiness without a theology lecture. So a building in which you're allowed to wear your shoes means there's going to be no blessing said, no prayer said within, and it's a lesser status of holiness. Even though they can say God is in everything. Yes? Could you speak a little bit about um, a less directly Hindu subject, but the, con the concept of Hindu nationalism in the country, and specifically with India being, uh, due to its very large Muslim population, actually one of the largest Muslim countries, Yes. the interplay between Hindu nationalism and then the difficulties between Hindu and Muslim relations. <laughs> <laughs> I lived entirely in a... I, the only way I gained so much information is I actually lived with the Hindu side entirely. And rather than the tourist who could go to uh, Hindu, Jain, Sikh, Muslim interchangeably, because it's all cool and it's all interesting, I had a very clear point of you know, being in the Hindu world and really speaking to every cab driver and fruit salesman and, and everybody about their worship practice. Can you speak about it, um, at least from that lens, specifically about uh, the level of Hindu nationalism in, among Hindus? It's, very, it's, very, it's certainly very strong in the north. Mm -hmm. The northern poorer provinces feel they were left out by the secular government for many decades. Mm -hmm. And therefore, in some way, to use an analogy, the same way Israel was founded as a socialist secular state, mm -hmm. 
And then the, when Menachem Begin came in, there were all these groups that felt unenfranchised. And then lo and behold, we now have a much more Jewish national view in the 21st century, for better or worse. In India, a lot of the Nehru dynasty was incredibly secular, bent over backwards not to emphasize Hinduism. And so therefore, a lot of groups are now finding they're getting their day in the sun in the fact that Hindu concerns are being heard. So especially in the Hindu regions, there's a great deal of significant support for the Hindu national parties. Yes? You may have touched on this before, but I was telling a cousin of mine, Benet Brock, there were the similarities between Judaism and Chinese medicine, how there were very, a lot of similarities there. And she said, well, of course, Abraham sent... Uh, so that comes from Menashe in Israel, a book called Nishmach Chayim, written in the 17th century, a book that's still read in the Haredi world because it's one of the few Jewish books that discover, talks about the discoveries of the new world and the new lands and talks about Descartes and talks about all of the 17th century. So it's, a, it's a, considered as a, a conduit for, for information that's still read and that, that story continued to travel. Last night, this may be the last question tonight, which is just, um, can you tell us what to expect tomorrow night for those who might join? For just a, a minute or two, and, um, you know, so, so the intros you're going to get, you, one thing, it's going to actually meet a group who's going to be your neighbor to do interfaith work here in Phoenix. I go back home, but the goal is to meet a group that's actually you can continue to work with the Hindus. They're probably going to give you some little introduction and how proud they are. As remember, they, they just got here, so the same way like a Jewish group in the first, res, first place of residence, like the Lower East Side, will tell you how proud they are of the temple they built that looks like back home and all that. You're probably going to get some sort of lecture like that because that's usually what you have. And then there's going to be an evening service of various parts. Partly is going to be a fire offering, and partly is going to be offering fruit and flowers to the deity. Jews do not take part in the offering. Jews do not eat of the offering afterwards. You know, if they offer me, I will decline. And as a group, I think collectively we should work as a whole and to respect everybody and just understand we're coming as a Jewish group. And the most important thing you can do is respecting our differences. They're going to show you what they do, but let's not blur our sense of who we are. And, and so they will show us this is their evening service. This is what they're going to do. Here are the flowers they use. Um, and you'll have a better sense, and it's going to demystify and make them less foreign. You'll also see, because they're here in Arizona, no, it's not going to be like it, meaning already the same way synagogues in America are not like they were back in Poland or Hungary. So, too, the Hindu temples here have a lot of Americanization. Most notably, and I'm going to point that out, what you should point out when you go in, they'll almost all have a social hall. They'll have a men's group and a sisterhood and a Sunday school. 
And if they're going to call the Sunday school by the name of the language that it's in, like we have Hebrew school, so there'll be Gujarati school and Tamil school, and there's probably going to be a boys' basketball league. I mean, those are the things you're going to go in and look for, because if anything else, that demystifies it completely to understand that the way they work um, is going to have a lot in common with the way we work. Thank you very much. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.